0: We are in the book of 1 John this morning. 1 John, if you'd like to turn there with me, please. 1 John chapter 5, and if I've calculated correctly, this is our 20th week in the book of 1 John, and uh, we'll be our last. Not my choice, I mean, we just don't have any more verses in 1 John to cover, so we're, we're looking at verses 18 through 21 together this morning. So 1 John Chapter 5, verses 18 through 21 will be our text for today. So let's begin our time as uh, we, we look at those verses together. And we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So John's last words to these churches in Asia Minor, if he just said one last thing to say, if I had to say it and make sure I cover everything, if you haven't heard it so far, keep yourselves from idols. This is the message of First John. Actually, if we could summarize it, I would say that we would do well to say keep yourselves from idols is a great summary of what John has been telling us so far in this letter. Why is that? Because what has John been doing this whole time He has been establishing for us two very distinct groups of people one who worship the true God, right? And one group that does not worship the true God. And so as these groups are becoming more and more distinct by means of his teaching but not only that they're actually growing farther apart aren't they they have left and they are doing their own thing but yet that influence kind of remains among them and they're hurt by that they want reassurance of their salvation they want all of these things and so John has been telling them listen this is who Jesus truly is this is who God truly is this is what it actually looks like in reality and if you are a child of God you will be loving the children of God and this is how it all works together don't be fooled this is how Jesus is properly identified and those who have left you are identifying him differently and if you identify a person differently you don't even know who he is I mean if you were to invite someone to church here and you were to describe me and you describe someone who is not me and then they come and they meet me and they say well you're not the person they described at all and you didn't describe me did you When you describe someone, you want to describe them for who they truly are, for their proper identity. And if you describe them improperly, then you don't even have the right person in mind. For these people who have left, unfortunately for them, they are defining Jesus Christ other than who he actually is. They don't see him for Jesus Christ, son of God, Messiah, but actually as something different. And so it's important to John and it's important to God Obviously, that we identify Jesus properly for who he is, because if we don't, if we don't understand who Jesus properly is and we give him worship, what are we worshiping? An idol, something that isn't true, something that is not God himself. And so, that being said, do you see how he might say at the very end, so, remember then, keep yourselves from idols. But what does this warning anticipate or what does it have laying behind it? that we all are going to have a tendency to want to worship idols. And you might say to that, not me though. I'm not at home fashioning up a little, you know, wooden or metal thing to worship. If you are, I mean, <laughs> quite obviously this is not right. But for most of us, that's not even anywhere near our minds, right? So you might think, well, idol worship is far from me, but Of course, we know that idol worship is setting anything else up as God who is not God and giving him honor and praise as God, right? Anything, it could be anything. So what does he say to us just in the verses leading up to this that he might say at the end, so then keep yourselves from idols? What is he saying leading up to that? What are the very last things that John wants his audience to leave with? Let's look at it. Let's look at verses 18, 19, and 20 kind of together. Um, And here's what it says. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Let's actually, let's stop right there. There's a couple of words here that says we know. Do you see them in your text? It says we know, we know we know. You see it three times. Here are three things that we know. Two of them kind of go together. Here's something that we know. Everyone who has truly been born of God, that is a child of God, does not keep on sinning. We might say this as the true child of God does not persist in sin. This does not mean that you will not sin. Didn't John actually already make that really clear? If you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you, okay? So it's not that you are not a sinner, but it's that you will not persist in sin. Because the true children of God do not persist in sin. They do not continue on in sin. This is a way that we can know who are the children of God and who are not. Is that those who are children of God cannot persist in sin, actually. It's not that they will not, so much as they cannot. They cannot. 1 John 3, 8 and 9. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning, and the reason the Son of God uh, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and listen to the words that follow, and he cannot keep on sinning. Why? Because he has been born of God. Why doesn't the believer persist in sin? Why is that part of being a believer? Actually, why is it even necessary that believers do not persist in sin? Just think about it with me. If justification is as we understand it, if at the point of faith we are justified completely, that is, all your past sins, all your present sins, and all your future sins are forgiven, and you stand justified before God, then what does it matter if you persist in sin? Because it's all forgiven. Why? Why does it matter? Why does it matter that the believer does not continue on in sin? It's a matter of how salvation works, and it's a matter of how God intends for the believer to be. But I, I think maybe more significantly, maybe maybe more fundamentally, is that God Himself resides in you. See, God's seed abides in him. Did you hear that wording? God's seed abides in him. We all understand what that means. You have been born of God. You were a child of God. You have God residing in you. Is God going to allow where he is to persist in sin? Now, heaven is the mark of that. Heaven is the pure mark of that. Is there any sin in heaven? No, because that's where holy God resides. There is not going to be any sin in heaven. And now, as God comes and makes his home with you, is he going to be satisfied with sin remaining and persisting in you? if we have a proper view of God's holiness, God's character, then and only then can we have a proper view of man and sin. So what we have to constantly be doing is seeing ourselves in such a contrast to God himself. I am man and he is God, and if I have a proper view of God and his holiness and his perfection, then when I evaluate myself based on his perfection, how do I turn up, how do I look? And the more you understand God's perfection, because we continue to understand it, right? Like when you first came into salvation, you thought, God is great, God is perfect, God is wonderful. But only if you knew now, or only if you knew then what you know now, right? Because now the mark of perfection, the mark of God's greatness has only grown with time in your mind, right? It's not that God's greatness has actually grown, it's just that your understanding of God's greatness has grown. But what has also grown with it, and this is the point, is that the greater your knowledge of God's perfection and holiness, the greater you understand yourself in contrast, and so the worse off you realize you actually are. Right? So high view of God, low view of myself. Low view of God, high view of myself. These work together. Now, if God himself resides in you, and as John is gonna say, he's teaching us. He's teaching us about God, teaching us about who he is. And so this gap continues to widen over time. And so as we mature in Christ, we start to understand more about who we are, more about who God is. And sin becomes more and more and more serious to us because we start to understand its depth within us, right? Okay, so by very nature... Um, the contrast between God and man um, becomes more distinct over time. You know, I was just thinking about this. Uh, you ever had to figure out if something was dark blue or black? Yeah, I know you have. This is a common human dilemma. Because you find a shirt or a pair of pants or a jacket or socks, right? And you say, it's black, it's black, right? And then someone else says, what? What? I think those are blue. And then is the problem, right? So what do you do? You get something you know is black and you hold it up against it. If you haven't done that, that's the way to solve the problem, by the way. Get something that you know is black, hold it up and see if it's the same. If it's dark blue, it will show. If it's black, you'll know it. But only when it is measured against that which is pure, right? Only do we understand ourselves truly when we're measured up against that which is pure. If you don't measure yourself up against anything, you're going to come out looking real good. But when you measure yourself up against God, the true colors show. Do you understand? Now, it is true that the seed of God abides in us. And so as the seed of God abides in us and we come to understand him, certainly sin is going to be leaving us. This is what sanctification is. But let me just make this other point, And this is really what the point that John's making right here is that the reason the, the believer does not persist in sin is, is for what he said. What did he say? We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him. He who is born of God protects him. Who is that? Yourself? Because I was born of God. No, he who was born of God. This is a reference to Jesus himself, right? This is a reference to Jesus. He who was born of God, the son of God. He who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. You know, another reason, a primary reason that you are not persisting in sin and cannot persist in sin, will not persist in sin is because your savior is protecting you from Satan himself. But this could mean a number of things, couldn't it? This could mean, Satan, Satan doesn't touch me. If, if I were to say to you, all believers are 100% completely protected from Satan and his influence over your life, he will never touch you, he will never get in your way, he has nothing to do with you because you are in a bubble of God's protection, the word says it. To that, you might say, what? I don't think that's right. My personal experience tells me Satan is very much uh, a problem for me, still. If you're acquainted with the scriptures, you actually know that to be the case, don't you? So what does it mean that the Son of God protects us from the evil one? He does not touch us. In what way does he not touch us? There are definitely a certain number of ways that Satan can touch us, and so we need to understand what John means that the evil one does not touch us. Listen, for example, to Revelation chapter two, verse 10. If you're looking for my notes on the screen, you're not gonna find them this morning, so you'll have to take your own, okay? I saw several of you looking up at the screen. They're not coming. Revelation chapter two, verse 10. Listen to what it says. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto what? Death. Who's gonna throw them in prison? The devil is gonna throw them in prison. And they're gonna suffer, and they're gonna experience trials and tribulation, and then they're gonna die. Was Satan involved in that situation? Did he touch them in that regard? Did he bring suffering on them? So is it not true that the son of God is protecting us from Satan touching us? Or maybe does it mean something different? Or uh, I'll just let you look and reference 1 Corinthians 7, 5, talking about a husband and wife, that if they deprive themselves, that Satan would come in and tempt them because of their lack of self-control, right? Who's gonna tempt them? Satan, but I thought Satan couldn't touch believers. Well, evidently he can touch them as far as temptation to sin, right? He can touch them as far as sufferings and trials and even death. What does Ephesians 6 verses 11 and 12 tell us about this? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. If the devil can't touch me, then what do I need armor for? That's a good question, isn't it? If the son of God is protecting me from Satan, then why do I need to have spiritual armor? The reason I'm, I'm pointing this out is because how many of us really do genuinely think that just as long as I have faith and I believe that Jesus is my savior, I am protected from all ills that might befall me. I just simply need to have faith and everything will be okay. I will be protected. I will not have this suffering right now. It will pass over me because I have Jesus. Just be honest with yourself. At least at times you have thought this. I have Jesus and therefore having Jesus means I will not suffer because he protects me. But is that what it means? Is that what it means that we are kept from Satan? We are protected against him. Now, if you think you are protected from Satan in that way, what will you not put on? Armor. You will not put on armor if you think that there is no one after you, no one to hurt you, no one to harm you. But there is someone to harm you. For we do not even wrestle against flesh and blood, the things that we're looking at, touching, seeing. That, that's not even the struggle. You realize the struggle is against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. Spiritual forces of evil (laughs) in the heavenly places. Yes, that battle is real and it is present for who? Believers. You and believers are wrestling today. Now, what of this business that the one who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him? Well, if you just go back, to the beginning of uh, verse 18 and we read it in context, we realize that the protection is about something in, in, in particular. There's a particular type of protection that he's referencing. What is that? We know that everyone who is born of God, what? Does not keep on sinning because God protects him. It does not say that everyone born of God will have no ills befall them because now they are a child of God and so you know Satan can't touch you as far as sufferings and trials and, and all this types of, type of thing. You, no temptation will come your way. Uh, by the way, if temptation from Satan meant you were holy, then what does that say about Jesus? Was he tempted by Satan to sin? But did he sin? No. So, what can we conclude is being said here? Whatever the protection is, is against sin. Do you see it? The protection is against sin. In what way? That you will never sin again? Satan will no longer have any power over you and you will never fall into sin again? Well, we know that's not right either. Where is the balance and what is John trying to tell us? Why is it so important here at the end of this letter that he, tell us that, he tells us that the one who has been born of God doesn't keep on sinning, but the one born of God, Jesus, protects him. What does this mean? What this means within the context of these past 20 weeks together, looking at John's letter. It is impossible for a child of God to be under the full power, rule, and influence of Satan and sin. Why is that? Because we no longer belong to him. And you will never be taken away from God and gripped by Satan so as to be under his rule ever again. And what does Satan want you to do? What does his rule force you to do? What does it trap you in? Sin, rebellion. Do you remember the world that we talked about? It's that sphere of rebellion those who are the children of God have been taken out of that sphere of rebellion, the world. We no longer are of the world. That's not us. We've been taken out of that. So what John is telling us is that Satan is the one who has the power and influence over that world, that sphere, right? You have been taken out of it. So therefore, he is no longer the one who has the power and rule over you. You are no longer trapped by the influence of rebellion and sin. And you never will again he doesn't have that power over you the one born of God Jesus Christ protects you from that he holds you in his hands and he will not let go Satan cannot take you back Satan cannot take you back why might we need to hear this you already know you already feel it Because there are times when we feel as though Satan has taken us back. Isn't that right? Have you ever felt the grips of Satan on your ankles to drag you right back where you came from and shut the gate and lock you right back in that domain of darkness that you came from? And you say, I don't want anything to do with that. And you fear that you have been trapped again by Satan and his power and influence. But what John is telling us is that if you are a true child of God, the Son of God is the one who protects you, and he will not let you be taken back into that domain of darkness for Satan to have his rule over you. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer? John 17. John 17, verses 15 through 17. Just just listen. By the way, when Jesus prays something, Do you think that that prayer is effective? Let's just start there. Is Jesus a good prayer? Does he pray according to the will of God? It'd be weird if he didn't, being that he is God, right? So the prayers of Jesus are effective. Listen to what he prayed for you and for me. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but what? but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. No sin remaining, right? You will not persist in sin. Sanctify them. In truth, your word is truth. So two things. The two things that John is touching on are the two things that John pointed out in the high priestly prayer is that Jesus is praying for our protection from the evil one, prayer granted. Jesus is praying that the Father would sanctify them prayer granted. You will be sanctified. You will not persist in sin and you will be protected from the evil one. It is God's plan, however. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So it is God's plan. His intention That those who were called out of the domain of darkness still live in the midst of a people who belong to the domain of darkness. Now, this is a common theme in the scriptures, isn't it? Is that we are here, but this is not our home. We have a home that is to come. We are citizens of heaven, not here. Why, if we are children of God and we belong to heaven, does he not, why does he not just, when you come to faith and you are justified, listen, my justification's not gonna get any better, no, longer, no, no matter how long I stay here, I'm not gonna get more justified, so let's just call it quits, just take me home. Why does he plan to leave us here even though we are already justified? I don't know, but it is his plan, given that we are here. But what he does intend to do, we can know for certain, is to sanctify us. There are some, however, who come to faith and their processes of sanctification only last a day before they go to be with the Lord. That's true. But there are some who remain for years, right? Decades all that process of sanctification that God is leading us through, we don't know how long this process is gonna be. We don't know how many days we have here on earth as a Christian, but God is using all of them. He is using them. His plan is for you to be a people called out of darkness, become children of God, right? His spirit is living in you. You are putting away sin, putting on Christ, and yet you are living here among a people who only rebel against God. It is their heartbeat. That's all they want. They live in darkness. They can't see where they're going. They don't even know that they're in darkness. And yet we are called to be lights in the midst of darkness. One thing that I, I want to say that has been a theme for John that he's touching on here is that the believer has experienced a type of irreversible change I I think that some Christians understand their change uh, that is when you are born again that is when the spirit of God comes in you and you begin to be sanctified I I feel like some Christians understand that their change is kind of like water and that they are water and they are becoming ice or maybe they are ice and they are becoming thawed out into water right but just as easily as it became one or the other it it can go back so um, I'm icy you know, at times, and then I'm more, you know, water at some, and my my condition kind of changes. I go back and forth. It's a change that we go in and out of, and I think that's the way some Christians understand their spiritual life. However, that is a reversible change. Do you understand that? You can go back into ice. You can be water. You can go back and forth. That's a reversible change. That is not the type of change that a true believer, child of God, experiences. A true believer, child of God, experiences an irreversible change. More like burning wood and it becoming ash. You can't make it wood again, it's ash forever now. It can't go back. That is the type of change that believers experience. We once were not a people and now we are a people. We once were in darkness and now we are in light. Are we gonna go back to the darkness? No. We once were under the rule of Satan and now it is impossible for us to go back under the rule of Satan. We once were slaves to sin and now it is impossible for us to be slaves to sin again. The true child of God will not persist in sin. Why? Because the son of God is protecting him you are going to live in a world that is under the influence of Satan and his power and you understand that. By the way, please don't attempt to make this mean that Satan is sovereign over the world because that's not what it means. We already talked about it in context that it is a a sphere of rebellion and influence that is the world. And Satan certainly has been given power over that realm, the realm of rebellion. Right? We get that. So, Satan is not in charge, God is in charge. But for those people who are enslaved to sin, Satan has them in his grips. He has power over them, but not the child of God. Just uh, one last reference on this. We'll move on to these last two verses. Uh, 1 John 2, 9 through 11. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother, what? Still in the darkness, So do you see that John is trying to point out this irreversible change? He's trying to say, you're either one thing or the other. You're either wood or you're ash. Now let's try to figure out which is which here. Are you wood or are you ash? They're very different things. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Look at verse 20, 1 John 5. And we know, there's another, there's something else we know. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true. in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Okay, so how did he get to this keep yourselves from idols part? We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Now, it says here in, in our text, in his, we believe uh, we, we are in him who is true. Really, I, I think to keep the wording more familiar and to flow better, it, it, it should be the true one because there's the evil one and then the true one. And you are either in the evil one or you are in the true one. We are in the true one. One, as it says we are in the true one in his son Jesus Christ he is the true God and eternal life is this a reference to Jesus as the true God or the father as the true God well, that's up for debate it doesn't affect whether Jesus actually is God or not by the way because the rest of the scriptures affirm that here's the point and it's very simple if you do not know the true one, how can you worship the true one? If you are not in him who is true, then you are not in him who is true. Right? These, you, you're either in him or you are not in him. And if you are not in him, then you don't know him and you don't worship him. To believe in and to worship that which is false, we already talked about, is idolatry. Here's the question. The question John leaves his readers with is this. Which God do you worship? That's ultimately the question. Having read everything that we have and studied up until this point and John says now at the end, basically now, which group do you belong to? Are you those who understand the Jesus of the scriptures, the true historical Jesus as I have laid out for you? Or are you, Do you belong to this other group that has rejected that reality? Which is it? Because you can't belong to both. Which God are you worshiping? If you say, I worship the true God, then here's the call to those who worship the true God. And the call is this keep yourself from idols. idolatry, I believe, can be understood in terms of that which holds your affections above God. And the reality is that God should hold all of our affections and we should be satisfied in Him. In in the culture we live in, we are pulled in many different directions to be satisfied in something. You are pulled whether you understand it or not, believe it or not, admit it or not, you are being pulled in your life to be satisfied in something that is not God. Do you admit it? You you have a pull and it's somewhat unique to many of us that we all have our different pull of satisfaction. We want something out of life to satisfy us. You have your own pull. For some, it's being satisfied in relationships. And if there's relational harmony with everybody, everything is good. For some of you, it's money. If, there's, if everything is good with our finances, everything is good. For, for some of you, it's status. If, if I can achieve what I want and get the recognition for it, then all is good. I'm not sure what it is for you. I have been praying for you that the Lord would bring that to your mind, that you might see it, that we all might see where we are tempted in our own right to worship something above God. And what that means is that your affections are set on it. If you look up and you see the one thing, if I, could, if I could say to you, what is the one thing that you want out of life? Or what is the one thing that you want resolved right now in life? What is the thing that is closest, nearest to your heart that you want? What is that thing? Can you, can you identify it? Can you identify what your heart is so longing for? Why are you so discontent? Because we all have discontentment within us? What is your source of discontentment? You have not yet got that thing that you want because your heart is so set on it, but you don't have it. You haven't attained it yet. You're trying with everything that you have to get that thing. What is it? If it's not God, then it has become an idol in your life. Is God the thing that is set before you always and your heart's affections are set on it? And so how does that help the situation? Because even though you don't attain the things that you might want so desperately, it's not wrong to want to attain things, that's good. But when you don't get them or those things are taken from you, you are not devastated, are you? Because you still have that thing that is most precious to your heart, which is God. And can even Satan himself pull that away from you? The answer is no. Nothing can pull you away from your Savior. So, in other words, you should have a satisfaction and a contentment in your heart because you have everything. You have a God who loves you. Why then would we ever want to set before ourselves something else that our heart's affection wants to be set on? Like, why would we ever put something else in that place? I like God and he's great, but if I also had this, imagine how great things really would be. If I could add to what, add to what? Add to who God is, add to what he has given you, add to his love, add to his affection over you, add to his saving might in Jesus Christ over you. What are you wanting to add to that you are so discontent in your heart? What is it that you don't have? For the believer, the answer is this. There is nothing that you don't have that you have not been given by God in Jesus Christ. You have been given all things. We already have it all. So we ought to be those people who most rejoice. We ought to be those people who have great joy even in trial and conflict, even when Satan might imprison us as he did to that church in Revelation. Why? Consider it all joy, My brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, joy in the midst of trials, how could that be? Because your heart is already satisfied in everything that your God has given you. And so it proves to us, it's a test, that if I find myself satisfied in God, that I have not set other idols in his place. Do you see it? If I find my true affections in God and and I'm satisfied in all that he has given, that even when all this stuff on earth is not given to me, it's okay. Because I don't worship that thing. My heart is not in it. My heart is in God. So why the call to keep ourselves from idols? Because we always want to go back to them. Because we always think in our own sinfulness that there is actually something better that God has not yet given us. And so we try to attain it on our own. I was thinking this morning of an old story. And uh, that story comes from the book of Exodus, and it's about a group of people who gathered together, and uh, God was about to do a great thing and uh, speak to them, and uh, man, they were super excited. I mean, really excited to hear from God Almighty, but he was taking too long. Um, I'm not sure what's going on here. Uh, We were really excited at first to hear from God, but God is just i don 't know what 's going on we 've never even seen your face i i don 't I mean we like you um, uh, but our leader is also gone i don 't know where he is. Uh, he said he was going to bring some kind of message from god, but he 's gone i don 't know where he is so the people got restless they were waiting and they got restless. they wanted to worship God, but they wanted to know how to worship him what What does that look like exactly and and well You know, time went by and they got a little anxious and they said, Hey, number two guy in charge, um, we want something to worship. And he said, All right, then, just give me all the gold you're wearing. And so they took off all the gold they were wearing and and he fashioned something up for them real nice. You know, it was a cow, of all things, you know, a golden calf. And they loved it. And even Aaron himself said, and so we will give praise to Yahweh. Thinking that they could actually worship an image that their heart's affections could be set on and God himself at the same time. Now when Moses came back down off the mountain and found this to be the case, he forced them to grind it up and to eat it. That's a pretty harsh penalty, but that's what happened. And he was so distraught at what the people had done, he took something that had been written by the very finger of God and threw it on the ground. If you had something written by the finger of God, would you throw it to the ground? If you had the very words of God, would you neglect them? We do have the very words of God. And yet, do we neglect them? Do we sometimes throw them to the ground? And sometimes are we those people who have just been lost and we get so upset and obsessed with the world around us that we just want to satisfy ourselves already because God isn't doing stuff the way I want him to do it. So we're going to take matters into our own hands. You want something that God has not given and that he is, is doing in his own time. So it becomes a little bit more real, doesn't it? Because sometimes there are things that we want God to do, but his timing isn't right. And we want him to act already. And so um, we're going to take matters into our own hands and that doesn't ever turn out well. I'll say one more thing here as we're closing. Book of First John. We'll start Second John next week. I wondered how I might summarize the book of First John. And this is the best I got. Ready? Serve him, love him, keep yourself from sin. Know him, trust him, love all God's children. This should be us. These are the warnings that we have in scripture to us. God wants us to love his children and if we truly are God's children, it will be expressed in the way that we love one another having assurance of our salvation, knowing that the Lord Jesus himself is the one holding us and protecting us.